drinker. He was to the bottle what Louis Armstrong is to the trumpet. But you are to the bookings what Mother Teresa is to the children. <laughs> Your brother was a clever one. You used to carry his typewriter. Doesn't they come into you? Whatever happened to him? Papa's lying down. I meant his career. That's lying down also. What chance would an Englishman give a leftist, communist, Pakistani on newspapers? <laughs> Socialist. I, I, I felt seen when we uh, had a dry British humor followed by a socialist communist commentary. Um, and I was not expecting that at all from like a random 80s movie with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Well, um, it was written by a playwright. Yeah, well, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, the whole thing reads like a play. Totally. Um, and it, it became a play now. Um, oh, did it become a play? I didn't know that. With with the the main actor who plays Omar, um, uh, forget his the actor's name, but now he's playing the father character in the... Um, oh, uh, Gordon uh, Warneck? Warneck? Yes, yes. So yeah, he plays the father character now in this uh, um, kind of repertory run um, of My Beautiful Laundrette based off the script of the film from 1985, which we will talk about later in today's episode all about... Film Trace! (laughs) I like that little... That would be a good handoff there. I tried my best to do a layup for you. No, it's fine. Uh, Hey, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. We are doing risque romance. Uh, we are in the 80s. Uh, we did what? Badlands and Harold and Maude in the 70s. What did we do before that? Lolita? Yeah. Lolita and Taste of Honey. Yes. Yes. So we are up to the 80s. Uh, we have a special guest, friend of the show, Bridget. Why don't you introduce yourself? Friend of the show. Wow. You're friend of the pod. Friend of the show. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Can you hear me? Am I, my, uh, my, my sound and okay? You're oh, yeah. great. I don't have any little lines on my on my thing. You know what I mean? Oh yes, you can tell. I'm seeing it record though. So yeah, right. oh yeah, I'm, you're, I'm you're seeing sounding it. Clear. Fantastic. Loud and clear. Hello? One? One, two. Uh yeah, come to the <laughs> so, show. Uh Bridget, I uh do we say last names or not because of all the you internet fans? If you want. Yeah. Um, you, you do you, man. We'll stick with Bridget, thank you very much. Um <laughs> and uh I'm here in support of uh Dan and Chris and this wonderful podcast. <laughs> I uh, host a podcast that has been uh, season two has been in production for a really long time um, called Screen Time. But uh, uh, stay tuned for for someday. Yeah, I mean, you guys had yeah was was it back in like uh, what January February? It was a while ago. We uh, yeah we kind of having you've been teasing the second season specifically with the promise of a guest spot uh, featuring the screenwriter of Sonic the Hedgehog. Correct. Correct. Um, And we are working on that. And uh, we have another special celebrity guest teaser in the works for season two. (gasps) Don't say anything else about Uh, Mark's got all these, uh, the most random connections that you can ever connection. Um, uh, So, but uh, yeah, we've actually, uh, so in our, our, um, podcast we uh the kids ages uh what are they now seven and nine uh talk for about 20 minutes about uh something that they're watching that they like and then we shift over to the grown-ups me and mark and we talk about something Mm -hmm. and we actually have about five kids parts of the podcast recorded and waiting (laughs) we just mark and i can get it together to um do it in the bank well they're they're in the can they're in the can Mm -hmm. 
Damien can. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. Chris, what are we talking about here? So we've already talked about my beautiful laundrette. What's the main film, though? Yes, our feature presentation is uh, more stateside entree, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I had to have Bridget on the show because she's the one to introduce this film to me. Did I really? Oh, yeah. Landmark 1983 rom-com Valley Girl. Classic. Directed by Martha Coolidge. So maybe... Since since you're the reason, I mean, Dan, you actually picked the movie, so I'm, I want to hear your background with the film as well. But uh, let's start with our guest. Um, yeah, go for it. What? I, what? Where did you? Where did you first in- encounter this film? <laughs> what has it meant to you over the years? Why did you in- introduce me to it in college? Um, the Valley Girl is a film that goes so far back in my personal history that I have no memory of first watching it. Like you have no memory of your first understanding of Santa Claus, right? Um, It just always (laughs) was. Um, 1983 was when the film was made, which is also the year that I was born. (laughs) Very special year indeed. Um, But I don't, I, I honestly can't remember the first time i I watched it. It was just like a, you had your staples that you watched all the time. And Valley girl was one of them. Another one was uh, girls just want to have fun mm, yeah. a little bit later with a uh, Sarah, Jessica Parker and a very young, um, uh, Shannon Doherty and Helen hunt, like a 12 year old Shannon Doherty, but we're not here to talk about that, I guess. Right. Um, <laughs> why did I, why did I introduce it to you in college? I don't know because it's a great movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause it rocks. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, Saint Elmo's Fire is another one like that for me. Where yes. uh, all, yeah. I have to say, through the lens of being a parent to young children now, I think of this, the garbage I watched as a kid and how that formed my sense of self and worldviews and and values and how I would definitely not let my children watch these movies. Not because <laughs> they're so necessarily inappropriate, but I but I feel like a lot of them. St. Elmo's Fire is a great example where I'm like, what are the values in this movie? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah. Really? Uh, Reaganism? Yeah. I mean, uh, among yeah. other things, right? Uh, but, uh, um, but I actually, so Valley Girl is one that I actually, I, I don't think it's so bad. It's not garbage at all. No, no yeah, like it's actually, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty interesting. Um, Little known fact, well, I guess it's a pretty well-known fact, but I'm uh, originally from Southern California, Thousand Oaks, uh, Los Angeles area, You're not exactly the, the valley, valley. but uh, a little little bit. I do have a neighbor here in Minneapolis who refers to me as Valley Girl. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I don't know. He's a, maybe wow. about 15 years older, and I'm not totally sure why, but... um. <laughs> uh, no, I just, I love this movie and I, it seemed like a no brainer that Chris would like it when we were friends in college because it, it does, it kind of hits all the marks for me. And it did, especially when I was that age, this was really the, the kind of movie that I was really interested in maybe because I wasn't quite ready to watch super serious things because vulnerability. Right. Um, but, uh, like it hits all the marks of being kind of cheesy and, uh, low budget and campy, but it also is like, uh, an enduring story i think yeah there's definitely something there i remember i i came across it in my 20s and i think it's my late 20s and uh i don't know why i decided to watch this but i had heard i think i've read some online forum or something where somebody said it was way better than you think that it is was it was it Uh, me (laughs) it might have been (laughs) (laughs) you might be the common denominator in all this and then i watched it. it 
<laughs> yeah, I watched it. I was like, kind of. I was. Gonna, I'm gonna say I was kind of blown away by it when yeah. I watched it in my twenties. Like I was just like, whoa! Like this is. I'm already a sucker for romance films. Like I mm-hmm. love rom coms in general. Mm-hmm. And this one. Uh, one of my favorite parts about watching the movies is just watching people fall in love. I think it's like a really fun thing to watch. And mm-hmm. uh, this is one of those movies where the the kind of as they are falling in love, it's really it's got to be up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like one of some of the best like on screen chemistry. Oh, yeah, and just the music, like the scene of the club. Um, yeah, there's something something special about it. Um, and the, on the rewatch, it feels a little bit different on the rewatch. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's dive into this thing. What is this movie all about, Chris? Uh, well, so it's it's probably most well known not only for being named after uh, the slang term of the early 80s that was technically coined by Frank Zappa from his song, also called Valley Girl, in which his daughter Moon Unit does the infamous vocals um, in which she says a lot of like kind of talky uh, Valley Girl-esque expressions, such as gag me with a spoon, as if, all that stuff, right? And the other part of its infamy has to be the fact that it's the first lead performance from the great Nicholas Cage, yeah. uh, who is uh, an actor. I don't know if we've ever focused on a Nick Cage movie for the, for the pod, uh, Dan. I don't, I don't think so. So it doesn't open a can of worms, right? Because uh, uh, there, yeah, there, uh, there's been a huge, like kind of cascading, you know, uh, change of opinions about cage over the years. Um, and, but I do think like in the eighties, people were really impressed by him, not only with this, but with moonstruck and raising Arizona. And then in the nineties, you know, it, it, it got iffy with uh, mainstream action films. And then he obviously had a number of resurgences in the two thousands and 2010s to the point where like he even played an exaggerated version of himself in a wide release movie just last year. The out of long title thing with Pedro Pascal. Um, Pretty good. Well, I hope Kinda if you it. someday talk about Con Air, you'll have me back. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Um, I promise. Oh, we, that was a that was a prime miss for the absurd action. Um, yeah, it was tough. That, that's one of my that. other favorite, most watched movies. Sure, <laughs> totally, totally. We will do. Everything. We'll just do an airplane cinema se- uh, themed season. <laughs> yeah. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, anyways, yes, like you guys mentioned, it's a it's a classic meet cute. Um, Kids from wrong side of the tracks. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit Romeo and Juliet, right? <laughs> like, right, totally yeah. to the point where like the the main characters are named Randy and Julie. Like it's not mm-hmm. subtle. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think one of the things that really stood out for me upon rewatching, and I don't even really knew if I it registered back in college about like who the director was, the fact that it was uh, a woman director, and. Yeah the majority of these kinds of films, especially in this time period were not, uh, female centric, nor were they helmed by women. Um, but that really kind of spoke loud and clear, um, with some exceptions. Uh, I, I, I think we need to do a deep dive on the bathroom voyeur scene. Uh, uh, but- <laughs> yeah, there's some problematic things going on. Here. <laughs> movie yeah. But other than that, like it's, it's, it, it, it that's what I think it really, what makes it still sing in 2022 is that really a solid perspective. I think even as like a a young girl watching this, that the female point of view 
throughout and even in like the way the romantic leads kind of pursue each other and in the way that Randy is um, framed, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Like to the, to the viewer, to the, the, the point of view that is like looking at Randy, like it feels very female centric and it felt very genuine. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, a female director is going to bring that for sure, but also she's going to be, um, ans- she's going to have to answer to the studios and pressures of the time, et cetera. Right. right? So right. I think those yeah. moments still come through, but overall, like this felt very real in terms of like a young teenage girl developing a crush. Like yeah. th- this was a movie that I could, uh, it felt extremely, uh, honest in that way. Yeah. There's a, there, I always felt that there's a sense of authenticity to this movie. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it didn't feel, it just didn't feel overly constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that too is like, and I didn't realize this until I started researching it. I just assumed that it was like a major studio film, no. uh, but this is like a, oh. like a micro indie, mm. like mm. the budget today would be about a million dollars, which yeah, is so like budget was $350,000. Yeah. And 1983 dollars. So you're talking like even that's like, that would be considered a micro budget film these days like that's below what blumhouse would spend on like a throwaway dv straight to dvd or straight to streaming horror movie and i think that like that thinking about that now and seeing the movie like there's yes there's parts of it that are just sort of like the editing and some of the shots feel a little clunky um but like that's part of its charm too though that's Mm -hmm. part of its charm but if you think of it as like an indie film it does really (laughs) kind of rearrange my perspective on it um (laughs) because it has none of like this it, it kind of sort of feels like a big studio film i think because the writing and the acting is so good mm-hmm. um but like there's also this sort of rawness to the whole thing that i think because it's an indie film it helped capture some of that authenticity of the mm-hmm. emotion i think nicholas cage and deborah foreman were kind of falling in love in reality is what they said yes yes uh and so which tends to happen sometimes in these movies but like yeah the, the scenes where they have this chemistry that's real chemistry mm-hmm. right that's not i don't even think that that's it's partly acting but it's partly just being in this moment shooting a movie i think in the what four weeks probably um all in location they had no permits whatsoever um i mean it was it's kind of like a weird gorilla type filmmaking mm-hmm. on yeah. some level but it doesn't i don't know like no one would ever mention it that way right no one ever thinks of like valley girls like oh this is this great indie film no <laughs> right no. like it doesn't it doesn't have really have that. About why. <laughs> <laughs> why why do you think that is i mean i you know sexism patriarchy the fact that it's a romantic comedy essentially and the yeah. fact that it's very like teenage girl centric yeah sure yeah and and i think it deals with things that are considered like not serious yeah in, in the fact in the way that they are often very like um framed as like feminine concerns too yeah Absolutely. like even to the point where it's like unlike a lot of the films that uh followed it where even if there was like a female perspective, it mm-hmm. was still like through this male gaze, right? Where it's like, like, Oh, of course she's in love with him. Or like he felt like to, as an object of affection. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, like, I mean, I'm thinking about like the beach scene, uh, when she first sees him, like, that's like, that's what I was thinking about too. <laughs> it's, yeah. one of, it's one of like the earliest examples I can think, especially for a movie that, you know, is even though, yeah, it's indie, 
you know, financially, but it's become uh-huh. part of this like worldwide cultural phenomenon of, you know, the pantheon of eighties rom-coms. Uh-huh. Um, you look back at it and it's like, okay, that actually is like, that's the female gaze. And you right. compare that to everything else. Like, you know, the, the sure thing, breakfast club, all the John Hughes, John Cusack stuff. And uh-huh. there, nothing even comes close to that kind of, right. That and kind those, of filmmaking. Those were the other, like, so again, thinking of like a coming of age, even though I didn't come of age in the eighties, these are still the, the movies that we right. had that, right. Yeah. So, um, like all those other movies, like, yeah, pretty in peak 16 candles. Um, uh, the girl has a crush on a boy, different sides of the track, popular, not popular. Like all the themes are there. But, uh, what I love about Valley girl is that it's really apparent that like she falls for him. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, um, it's mutual, but it's really like, she gets to have some agency in like who she's choosing. Um, and I, and she, that seems consistent throughout their relationship in a way that is really nice. Yeah. I, I am curious, Dan, when you, uh, I think it's different, right. If you're seeing it for the first time in your late twenties sure. ish. Yeah. Um, and Obviously, it hit you hard not only because you're like a big rom-com fan, because but because like you mentioned, there's that authenticity to it, mm-hmm. and even like divorcing it from like the, the gender stuff. If that's, I mean, that's not possible, but <laughs> yeah, that's you have, side. <laughs> <laughs> but like from from like a pure uh, filmmaking perspective, uh, I mean, part of the the appeal of a lot of these movies for me um, is the music. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, late 20s, like, that's fe- I feel like that for you, Dan, is, like, when you're starting to do the deep dive into, like, power pop and stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. of course. So is yeah. there, like, a crossover there where it's, like, oh, part of that authenticity lies in that soundtrack? Yeah, because it's interesting, too, um, mm-hmm. you know, before she was making this movie, Martha Coolidge was supposed to do another movie. Uh, for Francis Ford Coppola's studio that mm-hmm. failed. What was it called? Zotrope. Yeah, Zotrope. So she was supposed to do that, and she'd spent, like, what? Like, I think three or four years, like, going to, like, rock clubs or whatever for this mm-hmm. movie. It's, like, research. And so, like, the one thing this movie does is it, and it's a time capsule in a lot of different ways, but I think specifically with new wave music, it is, like, a bullseye. of you know this time period in 1983 and like going back and listening to this it's sort of like a guide to that music right Mm -hmm. um and what it was all about and like you know even like young people now you ask like what is new wave and they might sort of know but like here it's like so clearly the lineage of like punk and then as punk died out like new wave kind of taking its place which had like punk elements to it it's such a like a specific social like just cultural time like subculture going on right and she gets it so on the money that like there's there's a richness to it you know yeah. what i mean and yeah. like when even when you see it now it feels um it feels layered and it feels like she dug really deep into what was going on um in like i don't know like here's the thing how accurate is it to like the lifestyle of the San Fernando Valley. In the, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like not, uh, most of these people involved aren't from accurate. the Valley, but I don't know. Do you think it's accurate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean like uh, an exact, maybe some things are exaggerated for comedic effect, but like pretty accurate. Like, I, I mean, I think there's authenticity and it's genuine in that sense too. I'm so now that we're talking about this, I'm remembering that one of my, uh, the big things of this film to me was that I had the soundtrack 
Yeah. Whenever that came out, which I think was maybe later. Yeah, like 10 years yeah. later. Um, and I. Uh, yeah, lots of distribution problems. Lots of rights. Yeah. And yeah. like the Josie Cotton, especially, I was just like, ooh, yes. ooh what's this? This is different. And, um, and so this would have been like. Uh, like r- like 1994-ish when I was also mostly into like grunge stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and this was like a totally different, not to get too much about Bridget, but uh, I had a, a, a dad who listened to a lot of like uh, Guns N' Roses type stuff. <laughs> um, and I listened to a lot of uh, uh, Nirvana and was a big 11 year old super fan. Um, Cause I really got it, you know? Age yeah, 11. Oh yeah. Um, and then uh, this soundtrack was just, it, it was like music. Like I had not heard before because it wasn't, it was like music from the era, but it wasn't any of like the records that my parents owned. Right. Cause it was yeah. specifically oh, part yeah. of that, that like Hollywood scene huh? that never really, it adv- never really got to the, the Midwest until like MTV. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like, well, I, this is kind of like some Cindy Lauper, like it's kind of like talking heads, but it's not. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the angst in my pants. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. And that's such a weird example because like, for me anyways, I look back and see like bands like Sparks mm-hmm. and Bonnie Hayes and you like, Oh, that's, that's like kind of weird. That's kind of like left field pop music, like artsy pop music. But mm-hmm. in the movie, it's so like aligned with like the mainstream, yeah. uh, the, that Valley girl, like preppy kind of. And to the point where like the lines are so blurred. And one of the interesting uh, tr- pieces of trivia I learned is that originally Coolidge was trying to get um, like the Hollywood punk band X yes. to be, to be the bar band mm-hmm. um, when Randy takes Julie downtown. Um, mm-hmm. But X said that they didn't want to alienate their Valley fans yeah, and make it seem like they were like taking a side. And so then they get, and, and like, they're a lot like, rougher around the edges than the freaking plimsolls mm-hmm. they get plopped yeah. in there. And so it's just like, it's so bizarre. This like amalgamation of like weirdo pop music. And in some ways, like Nick Cage's taste in music in the movie is more straightforward than the Valley mm-hmm. people's <laughs> taste in music. Yeah. Uh, weirdo pop music. Like this is new wave. Right. So, right. um, it, but it was popular. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so I'm thinking of my parents who like who grew up in in LA in in the valley, well, kind of around, but uh, um, and yeah, like I I still they're like a little too old for this stuff, mm-hmm. and I was like a little would have been a little too young, <laughs> right? So I think it, it's like the interesting like history of new wave too of like it like captures this like very specific moment in time and place where this like genre almost took hold. And yeah. then it kind of it kind of went away. Yeah, it kind of dissipated pretty quickly, mm-hmm. like the yeah. mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, I met with you. I mean, oh my god, let's talk about famous. that. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking at like kind of the chart of when it was like really popular. It's yeah, kind it of like it's kind of weird because the song peaked. It was an import single that started to get played. It looks like the the end of eighty two, early eighty three. Um, this movie was released in what April eighty three, I think. Yeah. It also that song also topped uh, its peak chart position was in April '83. Mm. So it's kind of like a weird sort of like um, 
I don't know, confluence or whatever, mm-hmm. that this song is like peaking as this movie is coming out. And then from the movie, it gets even more famous and kind of goes on and on and on. It's got to be, it's probably one of the most famous songs from the 80s, right? Oh, totally. Like, like yeah. young people know about that song, right? And and uh, the thing that really stuck me with the rewatch um, compared to like so many movies that use a pop song for montage, they don't cut it down. I think maybe it's cut down by like a few bars, but it's yeah. essentially the entire song gets played with like these really extended like B roll shots of uh, uh, of their relationship blossoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the use of music here is interesting is in the sense that, like, it, uh, it f- also kind of feels restrained on some level. Like, she's using it in the right moment at the right time. Yeah, yeah. And then she's, you know, there's long montages and stuff like that. It's kind of funny, and this is, like, a, a sidetrack, but, like, recent movies that I've seen where they just, like, they play music over everything to kind of give the movie... Uh, some semblance of like I don't know potency or something. You like do slow mo <laughs> and play music over it. Pat it out, like, pat it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking uh, the movie that comes to mind for some reason, which is a good movie, and I don't want to disparage it. But Booksmart was one of those movies. Oh god, yeah, no, you're right. It was like uh, let's slow this down and put music over it, and like it, yeah. it's such a powerful thing to do. And I think in like Valley Girl, they do it. I think for the most part pretty well, mm-hmm. but it can easily get out of control. But it, didn't, it doesn't really happen here. I think she kind of. She makes those poignant moments just really, really work. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the moment when they first kiss in the club, which is like one of my favorite scenes. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's, it's, it's all pretty. So according to Wikipedia, the the song was made popular by its appearance in Valley Girl. Stateside anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, And then, but I'm, I'm just wondering, cause it's a song that you hear so much and I'm, uh, yeah lots of covers and lots of other um, movie appearances. So um, totally. I wish there was just a list of all the movies that used it. But with, yeah. Cause I'm, I'm trying to think of like all the different movies I've heard this song from, and maybe it really is mostly Valley girl. It also has that great music video. Right. Which is kind of iconic. It's a fantastic song. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, yeah. it's literally perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You know, credit where credit's due. Like Coolidge did handpick a lot of these, but she did have a music supervisor that like went pretty huge, not just in Hollywood, but mm-hmm. with like the music industry. This guy Michael Papali is essentially the reason that Nine Inch Nails went mainstream. You know, mm-hmm. less than ten years later. The so, yeah, the Nine Inch Nails. Sorry, um, <laughs> the, the Trent Resners. Um, you have uh, you have this really like kind of magic. Um, synergy between uh the what's going on behind the scenes and what's going on in front of the camera and i think that's another part that like you don't get a lot of in Mm -hmm. these other movies of this ilk like you mentioned 16 candles and pretty in pink like what Mm -hmm. makes those john hughes movies uh magical if still like greatly problematic especially Mm -hmm. so many years later is like that is the you know the, the 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 performances and the script, but there's nothing really else going on behind the scenes there that really makes it work. Like Johnny Hughes wasn't really a very technically talented filmmaker. No, yeah. much better on the page, and and same thing with like I mean I would argue even Cameron Crowe, who uh, you know I still have fondness for say anything and stuff, but there was just like. There was such this like myopic view, like that was partly part of the patriarchy thing too, where it's just like the guy wanted to make the movie the way he wanted to make it. But like Coolidge just seemed like 
so more like so much more like freewheeling and collaborative and to the point where like um i mean the the there were all these reunions for the anniversary of the film especially during the pandemic um over zoom and like all those uh women who played um Deborah Foreman's friends, like they're yeah. all like besties still today. Like they actually like <laughs> formed a friend group on That's set right. there, and like it's just it, you just get like such of a, a a warmer vibe from it than so much of the other like chilly eighty stuff. Like Saint Elmo's Fire too. I don't think Schumacher was really worried about creating a good vibe on set or anything. No, <laughs> no well, and I mean, there's also like the friendships in Saint Elmo's Fire, like our are tense toxic <laughs> as hell yeah and i think in a lot of john hughes movies too like there's a lot of toxic yeah there's a cruelty to it a lot yes of and that's like yeah that's not here valley no. girl but it's missing in a way that like it's not totally not there um but it i think i think it actually adds to the authenticity and i'm not gonna say that like there weren't um toxic relationships in my uh youth but like yeah but for the most part, like you're, you're just kind of friends and it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't so know. Like, the- I appreciate there's sort of like a, a f- fineness overall. Like they're, they're, um, it's almost like, uh, the, the drama of Valley girl is like underplayed in a way that makes it feel real. Mm. Yeah. Like, That's and I, fun. I, but it's, but it's still a fun movie to watch. So what's risque here? What, why uh, go back to you, Dan? I was just going to ask that. Oh, well, man, why you did you put this in the mix? Because it's such the, a there's the whole uh, trope of the the uh, girls. You know. Do I love the girl or the girl's mom? Yeah. Oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> I, actually, I love that I part of the movie. I love it's such a weird subplot. Yeah, I so love odd. the way they play with like what the viewer like is thinking. Yeah, yeah, no. And, I mean, and again, that that plays out in sort of a more like I'm going to say like realistic. Sure. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Way. Um, I think I actually chose this for a very specific reason mm-hmm. uh, for risque romance uh, to illustrate. Like we've talked about these other movies where like Badlands, where it's like very um, the power dynamics are just uh, talk about toxic. You know, it's like homicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Talk about Lolita. I mean, just the name itself, you could figure out the problem there, right? <laughs> um, I hope. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it, but well, I was thinking about like what makes a romance risque, hmm. ultimately. And it, it really comes down to like uh, sort of the social acceptance of said romance. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what makes it risque. Mm-hmm. And risqueness can be more on the extreme side, like a Lolita or like a Badlands. Um, But here it is risque because essentially you have two social groups that don't interact often Mm -hmm. and you have, it's the boy from the wrong side of the track situation. Um, And it, 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 it's funny and interesting because that's the central conflict of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, Julie has to sort of make this choice. Do I stay within my social class or do I go outside of it for love? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that pops up over and over and over again in romance movies. And it's more like maybe a milder form of risque, but it's actually not because those types of conflicts are actually massive in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, 
And it also sort of makes me, it's that big question of can love conquer these sort of bridges or divides that we have between people? Um, and sort of this movie has a very clear message. Mm-hmm. Um, but that obviously always doesn't play out very well. Like, you know, what's going to happen if uh, they get married and have kids? And like, Is it going to work out? Because she's kind of from, you know, she technically she's now that's the funny thing about the character. She doesn't have a Valley accent because she's supposed to be from Malibu. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So that's even more interesting because, you know, her parents are kind of hippies, which I love, mm-hmm. by the way. Oh, my God. Parents. The, the health food parents. store is fantastic. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point of it is sort of like risque is kind of, it's a very relative term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's yeah. relative to how people view in groups and out groups, essentially. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's now is the, is the conflict here that severe? No, not hardly at all. Um, it does get violent, I guess. I mean, it is interesting. You have this guy show up to a party because he's dressed differently and we don't know him. We beat him up. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It is like, we, we register that in our heads as sort of normal, but it Mm -hmm. shouldn't really be normal. Right. No. Like that shouldn't be that trope of like different attack different mm-hmm. hurt you know what i mean like yeah. i don't know it just to me it's sort of like um it's kind of baked into this movie uh, as assumptions but there is still something there in terms of like, yeah. a conflict so what do you think because uh, i uh, maybe i maybe bridget you can give insight to this um how how like ingrained and serious is that divide between the Valley kids and the city kids in the Hollywood suburbs. Is that like, like I, I, to me growing up in the Midwest, my whole life, well in a little bit on the East coast, but uh, what I don't see that kind of like, yes, there's like the mentality of quote urban to quote suburban and like rich versus working class. But Uh And I know that's like my privilege showing, but like I'm curious, especially with like California, because that became this kind of shorthand for movies because of where Hollywood's located. Mm-hmm. But what what do you did you notice any of that growing up? Uh, I mean, I, I it's important to note that my family moved when I was two. So as much yeah, as so, I so when you were one and a half, yeah, when I was one and a half, yeah. you know, being in the, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, but I, I have a lot of extended family there, and we did grow up visiting. And I, I, right, I mean, right. and I actually uh, I'd love to have my mom answer this. My mom uh, relocated. She's from Detroit, Michigan, and her family moved to a more affluent part of the Los Angeles area when she was twelve, hmm. and. Uh, her reminiscings, and this also would have been in the like mid seventies, right? Um, are, is that uh, class and wealth were super important, mm-hmm. and um, it was like everywhere, much more than her experience of uh, being a younger person living in Michigan, hmm, um, interesting. Yeah. or in a place like Detroit, especially, right? Um, so. Uh, where certainly there are class structures in Michigan as there are in Milwaukee, as there are in Minneapolis. Right. Um, so that, uh, cultural divide that comes with class, like part of that probably is some privilege, not recognizing it. Cause I think that exists here and that exists everywhere. Um, sure. but I do think that, uh, there are a lot of communities in LA that are more consumed with, um, status maybe, than elsewhere where it's more widespread of a thing. But I think also like, um, 
I mean, we're talking about like a class divide, a cultural divide. And I mean, Valley Girl also is almost like, can be like a, um, and like talking like a Valley Girl, like using some of that slang. Yeah. So it have been like later, like in the 90s. Like my memory of that, that can also, uh, almost like derogatory. So yeah, uh, totally, if you're totally, outside yeah. of the Valley, it's also, it's not just wealth, but it's like a specific kind of wealth. Like these are not people living in Beverly Hills. This is not yeah. like old money. This is like new money, materialism, vapid, mm. self-importance. Yeah. And if you think about like that versus like the like punk rock scene in Hollywood, like that's going to be a pretty important divide, especially if you're a teenager where you're finding your identities in these spaces. And that's really important. Right. Yeah. yeah. I true, mean, true. I wouldn't have dated someone who liked pop music. You know what well, I mean? <laughs> how shallow of you, Bridget? Listen to like KDWB, like gross. <laughs> no, I, no, but I mean, honestly, like the the I, I remember being even like in college and moving through different like uh, oh, absolutely cultural yeah. of like finding myself and like different things that you were into signaled, and I wasn't necessarily thinking of like a class um thing even though that was certainly present right but like it signaled like uh what kind of subculture you were part of and what you were into right. and whether we would share yeah. the same political beliefs and values and that certainly um was how i navigated dating um high school's a throwaway because i didn't go to high school with anyone who wasn't exactly the same but um <laughs> it's true <laughs> uh there were no sub subcultures in my high school but uh but college that was a piece of it so i think that comes through um, I don't know if it's so overblown that like you would beat someone up for being different as soon as they get to a party, but like, I don't know, people <laughs> get beat up for being different all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and there's also a lot of like homophobia sure, in, yeah. in that Fun. hatred of the, uh, punk scene. Yes, absolutely. So I think that was a piece of it in that scene, actually. Totally. Yeah. Like, like the, a- the yeah. quaffed hair and the suspenders. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and having sort of that, like, it's not a very masculine look and it, you know, no, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on like, uh, LA subcultures necessarily, but I, I, I think it's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, Hey, speaking of homophobia, should yeah. we yeah. move on over to our Jeez. chaser <laughs> film? About this movie. That's okay. That's okay. But, we uh, this is uh, a movie. Have you ever seen this before, Chris? Uh, no, no. This was one that had been on my list. I actually, funny story, last time I visited you, no, a couple times ago when I visited you when you were okay. living in Missouri, um, you, uh, you were doing work stuff or something, and yeah. um, I didn't have Criterion Channel at the time, and so I was just flipping through, like, looking, I was like, oh, this looks interesting. I watched, like, five minutes of it and then fell asleep, and <laughs> but it always been in the back of my head, like, oh, I want to go back and finish that, because that first five minutes is just, like, so wild it just like yeah, starts with this like ransacking of this rundown flat in britain and like you know in medias res you have no idea what's going on yeah. um and then so when you picked it for this i was like okay good i finally get to go back and actually watch this movie so thank you yeah um, of course i liked it a lot but where did where did you find it and because i had no idea that uh i knew it was daniel day lewis i know it was like the there was that classism um connection sure 
Um, but I didn't know the race stuff, and I also didn't know the uh, uh, you know homoerotic, homosexual uh, aspect of the romance subplot. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I um, I was looking for something because Valley Girl, I feel like, yeah, it's risque esque, you know. Um, it's uh, the conflict there is not sort of super extreme, um, but and I just kept sort of looking and looking through different films, and this one came up. Uh, and I think I, what interests me in this one the most is that the sort of the homosexual aspect of it is played down pretty totally. Massively. It's right. a subplot. It's not it, even it's like a, an A story. Yeah, because usually when you're dealing with something like maybe like a something like a bigger film like uh, Brokeback Mountain or something like that, where it's like that's the centerpiece, and the fact that someone is gay is like, well, that's the entire movie, right? Mm-hmm. And in this one, this is 1985. This is a film that was made for a couple million dollars. Uh, essentially produced through Channel 4, which is a BBC type thing. Um, and was supposed to be played just for television. Um, but it did so well, uh, I think at one of the film festivals, maybe the Edinburgh Film Festival, that they're like, we got to put this out. And it eventually became kind of like a little bit of a minor hit. Um, and then the writer got a, a Academy Award nomination. But yeah, the thing that like stood out to me is that sort of the homosexual aspect of it is just a part of the story. Right. It's just kind of like, it's not necessarily in the background, but it's just there. Um, and it's like that sort of level of um, openness and tolerance, especially in the mid 80s, is really surprising. Mm. Um, and like going back to like a taste of honey, that's what it was called, right? Taste of honey. Yeah. From um, 61. Yeah. Yeah. From 61, it, where you couldn't, where homosexuality was literally illegal in Britain. You couldn't say anything about it really i mean you could put present someone a character on screen and here we are like 20 some years later and the way that this is played it's just so kind of nonchalant i think it was pretty pretty remarkable um and then of course the acting's phenomenal yeah um you know daniel day lewis in this is th- there's something just magical about him on the screen i don't know what it is it's the way he just inhabits the screen and kind of soaks it up yeah um yeah, and he, I mean, he, he begged Stephen Freer as the director for this role, which is yeah. another like just sign from the get go before this guy even becomes a well-known entity, much less like multi Oscar nominee um, yeah. that he's like, <laughs> this guy's like fearless um, in, in not just the fact that he's playing uh, a gay man in the mid eighties um, during the AIDS epidemic and uh, Thatcherism and all that. But like he is, taking this role on um, as a supporting actor to a lead role for a Pakistani character, which yeah. is another part of this film where it's like, and Frears, you know, readily admits this, like they thought it was going to be like shown a couple times on channel four and yeah. you know, it'd be lost to the sands of time. Like so many of those channel four films. Yeah. Um, but what he, what do you think happened in the midst of all this that, uh, had um, Channel Four switch gears and like pushed for a theatrical release. Oh, I think it, they they kind of did a test run of it. And, uh, I think at, like a film festival or something like that, and it was like sensational. I think is what they said the response. And I think there's a reason for that. Like, um, you know, we talk about authenticity and stuff uh, in Valley Girl. This is like a different level of it, 
where this is feels almost not almost like a documentary on some level. Like it's that level of lived in. Um, because the writer, um, um, Hanif, uh, Karishi, uh, who went and got nominated for Academy Award for this was a playwright. He kind of lived this life. Uh, mm-hmm. and he basically was writing about his own life on screen and it, it just, it was electric. I imagine. I mean, yeah. can you imagine seeing this movie in 1985 in, in England as Thatcher is starting to, you know, really starting her reign. And it's like, this is famously, I think one of the first films that makes fun of Thatcher and all that kind of stuff. But the class <laughs> politics here are so um, precise. Uh, and these conversations that the Pakistani community is having about their place in the UK and in capitalism, I mean, they're pretty profound, right? This is not just like throwaway lines people are making. Hmm. Like they're talking about on like a philosophical level, like what is, where is our home? Where do we belong you know, and like there's this dangling of capitalism and making money, but then they're also at the same time missing the culture and the religion of their home. Just like the layers of conflict here uh, are so um, beautifully intertwined. Um, yeah. And the sort of the sexuality part of it is minor because I think, uh, you know, I think t- uh, to some people in their lives, it may not be the central part of their life. It may yeah. be the part that they're also a Pakistani immigrant. They're mm-hmm. also, you know, dealing with right-wing neo-Nazis in their neighborhood who mm-hmm. hate them. You know, it's like there's a whole, I don't know. I think that's the thing to me that it, uh, why it probably resonated so well. Not only in the UK, but also in the US it did quite well. Yeah. Um, because it just it had something very, very special and unique and rich about the whole thing. And it came out in the US simultaneously like literally the same weekend as uh room with a view a period yeah. drama with daniel day lewis which you know also has kind of a cultural footprint but is very much seen as like an example of the period drama right and the fact that you see those two polar opposite performances from the same guy and everybody knew that like you know we had a major player in the game now and i i think it's unfortunate because like as you mentioned it's not just day lewis that's holding his own mm-hmm. um who we have uh, uh gordon renarchy who is playing the lead character and not only does he have amazing. that yeah he's amazing he he has this that's that similar sense of fearlessness to him because that's part of the nature of the character of uh being this not only uh gay immigrant but also like willing to like just throw himself into this entrepreneurial business and get in you know dealings with uh drug dealers uh, with like. drugs yeah and like trying to you know float a business and, and like it's just like it's so weird because it's so small and yet these characters are so big yeah. and like you said it somehow still comes across as natural which is interestingly enough like another commonality with Valley Girl cuz like I can't oh, imagine valley girl without like the bigness of cage's performance mm-hmm. even though it's actually like a really small story about these just these two characters yeah. that find each other just two teenagers falling in love mm-hmm. what, what was interesting about um this one though is that the risque part kind of going into it i was thinking oh um this is going to lead to uh, the homosexuality is going to lead to some of conflicts but that's not really no, the the core of it here, the core of the conflict is more uh, racial and class based. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and also domestic, like uh, the Omar's family. Um, I loved yeah. all the interplay between like the uncle and the cousin yeah. and uh, the uncle's mistress has, is like a really good supporting character too. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, the one thing that um, like you were kind of saying that risque part is like, and we talked about this going back to a taste of honey, that yes. kind of kitchen sink realism that, exactly that that film brought to it where it's just like it lays all this out and that move that play that movie also had that kind of play vibe to it yes. where but also the, my playwright. yeah yeah so but the it, but it's also like so about like the the lived in sense of place um yeah and i just like there's something about the that kind of that that british cinema um, whether it's you know originally made for television or not, where you have to, I, I, I feel like that that piece is is almost missing from American cinema. Like I, I was I, just gonna say something about right. This. Like uh, it's, it's, it's like, just it's so much more generic. And I live here, but yeah. I feel like so much more of that mise en scène when I'm watching a really good British drama. Huh. Well, it, it's just sort of like. Uh, yeah, it's like, I don't, there's something about it because, I, you know, with this film, it takes place in South London. It's so specific. The neighborhoods are so um, individualized. There's just this levels of um, social realism going on here. Hmm. Um, in America, we don't make films like that. In America, it's supposed to be generically everywhere. Right. Yeah. And like, I was thinking like, is there a film that recently came out that has this level of complex social arrangements going on? I mean, truly. That's a, that's a fair point. I mean, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is Florida project. Yeah, that's a good point. A good point. But also Florida project seems like it's like two layers and this one has like four or five. You know what yeah, I mean? that's fair. That's fair. Like, it's, it's like, it's a, very, it's like Uber specific. Whereas here it's, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the other thing, like, uh, obviously, you know, if, if you were to nitpick, like they didn't, they didn't, they didn't push and they maybe didn't have a pool for like actual Pakistani immigrant actors. That's true. Yeah. Right. Cause a lot of and so they're, Right, so they're pulling from Indian Indian immigrant actors, uh, Moroccan immigrant actors, etc. Um, but even like those actors, including uh, the guy who plays the uncle, I forget his name. Um, some interviewer he was mentioning that like even though it was you know the cultural differences that that is still like a common immigrant experience of having that kind of specific financial pressure of, and I mean, I've, and I've heard this from uh, my own students here in the States where it's like you end up getting so bogged down in this financial pressure that you feel like you have to like make good on the chances you were given uh, to, to, to get to this quote safer place. Um, and and so that's why like that's it's like uber specific but like you were kind of hinting at it's still so universal and so like um not uh not bogged down in stereotypes but also not bogged down in hyper specifics which yeah. is like the exact kind of balance you want to get for like a timeless piece of cinema and it has a wonderful happy ending 
<laughs> sort of. I mean, as a sort of. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like the the final shot is definitely very happy with them, sort of both like shirtless, like throwing water on each <laughs> other, and it's like this is very like sweet and like yeah. uh, nice. And and Valley Girl. I mean, what do we? Okay, let, let's go back to Valley Girl. The ending of Valley Girl. Oh my god, is it? Am I reading it wrong? It kind of. I don't. What do you guys think? What What's the, your read? My read is that like it's a weird ending. Number one. Uh, I wish she would have ended it a little bit differently, um, but it's essentially they're in the limo, um, mm-hmm. and the driver is like, "Oh, are we going to the Sheraton or something? Going to the hotel, which is mm-hmm. you know, supposed to be it's after prom, so we know what happens, right?" Um, and then it just ends. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Graduates, a little bit. Oh, she, so, she, yeah. she, she takes off Tommy's ID bracelet. Oh, yeah. okay, that's Tommy, yeah. You got the details. Tommy's outfit now. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she's made her choice. Right, yeah, right. Um, she's, finally, it, she's finally decided. And I don't think the graduate thing's a, a, a coincidence either, because they even you know with that subplot of the uh, you know the the fake out making the audience think that there's going to be a relationship between the guy, the kid and the older yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, they also in that whole segment um, use the, the less obvious reference. They don't say Mrs. Robinson or do like the, the, the rack focus between the legs, but instead she makes that like offhanded comment about plastics. Plastics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I don't, I, I, I think that there's still just like enough of, there's like an, enough of a glimpse of like, oh, these are teenagers and they don't know what's coming next, kind of thing. Also, like, you know, John Cusack and Ioni Sky in the airplane at the end of Sunday say anything, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of got to leave it a little bit up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we have? Some any closing thoughts here? Let's let's wrap this sucker up. Well, I'm working on uh, my beautiful laundrette. Yes, so streaming I'll, on uh, HBO Max. Thank you. Yeah, it's up there. It's um, really good. It's pretty short. Did you Great. notice anything peculiar or interesting or compelling about um, Nick Cage's chest hair? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he shaved, he shaved it. it into a triangle, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. I always thought it looked like a like an eagle, sort of, like wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing was uh, he's supposed to be playing someone who's like, what, 19? 18? Uh-huh. Uh, but I guess he was like 20 at the time. So and he, they told him to shave his chest. Right. Well, he, right. he kind of did. <laughs> right. They they wanted him to go completely hairless and gotcha. somehow being I don't know, just because he's Coppola's nephew or whatever, he's yeah. like, I'll I'll do you one better. I'll get you a weird shape. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know. Yeah, and then like lived in his well, car. Well as a <laughs> yeah. as a young girl watching this movie, <laughs> like that was what I expected of chest hair. Oh man! So you were disappointed. I don't want to say disappointed. No, I just, I just remember like I really vivid like, oh, okay, all right. That's how it works. So severe. It's so severe. So severe. Um, Here's the thing. I'll bring up maybe as like a closing idea. Um, I listened to another podcast about Valley Girl, uh, Mm. and the the sentiment was not great. Mm -hmm. And I looked online at a couple things. You know, it's not super super well received across the board and i was reading through like letterboxd reviews and there's a lot of negative stuff in there haters hey but like there's something i don't know what it is i think that people just like 
maybe it's like younger people. I, the, one of the things that came up in the review too, a review is basically like this movie uh, did so many things that are now taken for granted. Mm. Like sort of yeah. that, like people look back and it seems like a boring kind of lame movie. Yeah. But a lot of it, what was done here uh, it was kind of done for the first time. Here's the line. Uh, it's a measure of how like totally influential this little film was 20 years ago that there seems to be nothing special about it today. Interesting. Right. I just found it was strange. Some of the reactions are just not as glowing as I think we all had about it. I was, I, I mean, I've wondered how, like, how would my like college students receive Valley yeah. girl? Like yes. would it yeah. seem authentic to them or would it seem totally unrealistic and over the top? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and I'm, I'm comparing it to like growing up with like the John Hughes movies, which were over the top. But and yeah, so and those got, but, yeah, but what, yeah, I don't know. Those got really, I think the, what's interesting with the John Hughes movies is they um, had like a lot of sort of cultural cachet or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't all of a sudden. Well, right. right? There's kind of a reckoning. super problematic. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. um, I mean, Molly Ringwald did that whole, you know, mm-hmm. uh, first person account of Breakfast Club and all that. Yeah. For the New Yorker, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's another thing. I just, I just feel like what's, what's missing with a lot of these people seeing Valley Girl because it felt so plain as day to me. Mm-hmm. Like, we started the show with where it's like, this is such a more even keeled like bathroom scene notwithstanding Mm -hmm. this is wholesome this is like gives a lot of agency like you said bridget to the the female protagonist um but i do think you're still right dan like if you're ultimately still going to have a lot of those tropes in there no matter how well they're done no matter how genuine the chemistry is Mm mm-hmm you're gonna, there's lots of it. I mean, you, like yeah. she literally, the studio told her she needs four boob shots, <laughs> and she's like, okay. And then she just does like a boop, 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 boop. It's like uh-huh. clinical. It's, it's yeah. kind of an example of like someone, and this is to to Martha's credit, I think, is like this was planned as an exploitation film, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Porky style only, thing. Yeah, Porky style, three hundred k. That's why she got. It was usually called originally called Bad Boys, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so like she like basically hijacked the movie. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it was like, you know, yeah, I'm going to play ball with you guys, but I'm going to make this kind of really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's going to enact her vision of what she wanted to do. And mm-hmm. she, I think she came away with something pretty awesome. That's what For I think. Sure. Yeah. yeah. For totally, sure. Totally. For sure. Uh, like totally. Oh, th- uh, p- big props. We got to say it to the goat herself, Martha Coolidge for, uh, um, liking our and retweeting our tweet, uh, in praise of her, uh, Valley girl efforts. Uh, wow. We're literally yeah. famous now. Is she, she going to be a guest next time? Let's get her on. Dude, yeah, real genius has to be. Oh my gosh. Real genius is like one of my favorite movies. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, yeah, let's get her do on real genius. She's like the let's director get... of the DGA or something. <laughs> <laughs> I know. She's a big deal. She's, 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 she's a big awesome. deal. Um, okay. What do we got coming up? Oh man. Uh, we are going to head into the nineties. Um, we're going to hit it, hit the ground running with oh, the Wachowskis man. bound. <laughs> Um, with What's uh, the Jennifer chaser Tilly film though? The chaser film. The chaser film is uh, a little known. <laughs> I don't know. It's got like a million sequels. It's Poison Ivy. Poison the, Ivy. Lolita of the nineties. Lolita of the nineties. It's gonna be an interesting rewatch. Is that Jamie Presley? 
Uh, I don't remember any man. Oh my god! Yeah, it's been uh, a while since I've seen the Max. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> uh, Bridget, thank you for being on the yes. show. Yeah, awesome thanks so much for having me. Always fun um, to chat. So when's season two coming? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's in the can. We're working on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, it's, it'll be done when it's done. Yep, uh, okay, it's done. you can't thanks rush for, art, right? You, you can't. You <laughs> no, can't rush no. greatness. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace.